Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. House plants can bring us a lot of joy, but sometimes insect pests ruin the fun. Entomologist Zach Shum of the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic is here today to help us deal with insects that are plaguing our house plants. Hello, Zach. Good morning. How are you? Very good. And this is one of those cases, like so many cases, where prevention is the best method to deal with insect pests on houseplants. So when you're bringing houseplants into your home, whether you're buying them, inheriting them, moving them from outside, what do you do to try to make sure you're not bringing an insect infestation into the home? Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, prevention, like you said, is definitely key. And what we usually recommend, or what I at least recommend, is to isolate that plant away from all of your other house plants first and foremost. So put it in a room where there's no other house plants, or at least maybe the house plants that you care about a little bit less, perhaps, and let that plant sit there for a couple of weeks, you know, two to three weeks, and really monitor that plant to see if any unnoticed pests are on that plant. You know, insects are small. They're really hard to see. And we might not see them when we buy the plant, right? So, you know, it's always good to take a look at that plant when you first purchase it. You certainly don't want to purchase a plant that you can clearly see some insect pests on. But let's say you don't see any when you first purchase it. Put it in a a room, put it on the side of a house where there's no other plants that could potentially be impacted if you accidentally bring some pests into the house. It's much easier to manage pests on a single plant in a single room that's by itself rather than putting it right next to all your other house plants and potentially having those pests spread to other ones, right? So uh, look at the plant when you first purchase it. Give it a good inspection. Look at all parts of the plant, the stem, the leaves, everything. And then once you isolate it, just monitor it for a couple of weeks. Make sure it's watered properly, cared for properly. And if you do find something pop up on that plant, then you can react to that one plant instead of potentially all or most of your house plants, right? So that's typically what we recommend first for prevention, just Be diligent, look for those insects really well, and then move forward from there. Do you have any tips for how to look for insects on a a plant that you're purchasing? Because some of these insects are very, very small. Yeah, they're definitely very tiny sometimes. You know, we get into spider mites and mealybugs, you know, very, very small. And so it's always good to have a magnifier's loop, you know, magnifying glass or something. Uh, What I like to recommend is to really look on the undersides of leaves as well and make sure you're looking in all the crevices and small areas that insects and other organisms can hide. So... Um, it's always good to have that magnifying glass around. I think, you know, my eyes are definitely getting worse as we move forward. And uh, I even prefer to have magnification sometimes, and I'm trained to find these insects, right? So, but really take some time to like look in all those crevices, flip the leaves over and look for any signs of insects. It can be the insect itself. It can be frass, which is just another name for insect poop. Uh, you can do lots of things to, but you have to, you have to, again, like get a magnified view of that, of that plant. So, Think like an insect. Think of those places that those insects and pests can hide and look in those areas, undersides of leaves, in crevices of stems and things of that nature. So look everywhere, but focus on those areas that the insects could potentially be hidden in. Okay. Well, this all sounds like a really good plan and great best practice. I'm guessing most of us do not do this. (laughs) 
So, well, you know, this is yeah. this is a resolution we can make for the future. But, of course, a lot of us have already created problems in our homes. So when you start to identify that there might be insect problems in your houseplants, uh, how do you, and of course, if you have a collection of houseplants, you don't necessarily know where they're coming from. What do you do to try to identify the problem? Right. So, I mean, the, the first, I mean, first and foremost, like you mentioned, is like we it's very hard to prevent all of this from happening. Like it's, it's very common to get into indoor insect pests. I'm a notorious plant killer. Like every, I'm an insect person. So every plant that I bring in, it usually dies for some reason. I forget <laughs> to water it or I just like find the insects fascinating and I just let them kill my plant. And it's like kind of interesting. You're running an, an experiment instead of taking care of a plant. All right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, I, you know, well, the first, the most important part for managing an insect pest is to first identify that insect or identify that pest if it's not an insect, right? Um, so, you know, that's part of the reason my job exists is to help folks, you know, farmers, growers, home gardeners, just household hobbyists to identify their insects. Luckily, there's only like a few major pests on indoor plants, and they're easy to kind of learn what they look like if you just get a feel for it. So let's say you do get that insect pest in your plant, you notice there's a problem, it's really good to uh, identify that thing, that identify that pest first. So you know, send a photo of it to the Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic at Iowa State University. I'd be happy to tell you what the insect is and train you how to identify them in the future. Uh, and then after that, you know, we can focus on whatever insect that is or whatever pest you're finding and manage it, depending on what type or what pest we find. Because every insect, every pest has to be managed in a slightly different way. But the good news is, and I'm sure we're going to jump into this, is that the the first, the best way to manage most of these pests is to just wash your plants. Take those plants that have pests on them and isolate them. So again, we're trying to isolate the ones that might or do have problems to prevent them from going to other plants and being more of a, a hassle to deal with, right? Um, but washing your plants is usually your best friend. You can take a wet cloth, you can take a paintbrush with Alcohol, just rubbing alcohol on it and like rub those insect pests or pests off one by one. Those are really your best friend. And like, I think a lot of times we like to react to pests by saying, what can I go to the store and buy to right. spray on these pests? And that's often not best practice when we think of what's going to save us the most money and potentially time and hassle. Sometimes that's the cheaper option, which is just using a wet cloth or again, like a paintbrush with some rubbing alcohol. And just rubbing those pests off one by one and being diligent with it. I mean, it really does a good job most of the time. You talk about isolating the plant. Um, if you have a plant that has an infestation in amongst your collection of house plants, how likely is it that those insects would have already spread to the other plants? Or do they, they tend to remain on the, the plant that is the problem? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's actually a really tough one to answer because it depends on what types of plants you're growing inside. Uh, some insect pests that are household plant pests like to focus on one or two different hosts, Some, but most of these, they, they go on to different types of plants, right? But some plants they won't prefer. Some plants they will prefer. So you, it really depends on the situation, how close your plants are together. You know, are they right next to each other? Are the pots and the leaves touching? Or are they on the opposite sides of the kitchen or living room, right? Um, so really, it's a, it's kind of an impossible question to answer. You know, can that pest fly, right? Does it have the ability to move across the room quickly? Uh, lots of questions there. that it, And that's why, you know, again, part of my job exists is to help clients figure these things out. And like, what do we need to be worried about? What do we not need to be worried about? I'm less concerned about, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less concerned about spider mites moving from one plant in the kitchen to a plant in the other room. Other than... 
as opposed to aphids that might have the ability to fly to that other plant, right? So it really depends. All right. And and I did, um, you gave me a list of some of the most common household insect pests. So we've got mealybugs, spider mites, aphids, thrips, and fungus gnats on that list. If you know what the most common pests are, I mean, that, that really helps in identifying them. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And so I, I can be a little bit biased because my whole job is to identify insects. So I can look at a blurry photo of an insect and oftentimes know at least generally what it is. Um, so, you know, I have to, I guess, realize that. But a part of my goal when I, whenever I receive photos and I receive questions to get help about plant pests, I always like being really educational and teaching folks how to identify things on their own because these, these main pests that you just listed, they're all quite distinct if we just learn a little bit more about them. You know, an aphid does look quite different than a fly, if you have some sort of magnification to look at it. And, you know, spider mites look completely different. Mealybugs look completely different. But if we don't have a little bit of magnification and we don't have a little bit of experience with identifying these things, sometimes they all just look like bugs, right? They just look all very similar. So, but again, that's, you know, that's why I, my my job exists. And that's why I'm here to help is to help train folks on how to better identify these different pests. Well, and as you mentioned, you don't always see the insect. You might see signs of the insect, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and those they, they can be challenging situations, sometimes even for entomologists. You know, we can see signs of insects and not know exactly what's going on. So sometimes we like to get samples of folk, people's plants in uh, so we can make better determinations of what actually is going on. Sometimes there can be multiple pests on the same plant. And the question is, well, which one's the main problem? Why is this plant experiencing all these different pests on it? There's just so many questions that we could ask and so many potential answers and paths forward. Uh, but luckily, management uh, is is quite simple. <laughs> right. And so you, you mentioned washing the plant, maybe wiping it down. And, and just water could help you in this situation? Yeah, just water can be really useful in this situation. So I, I usually go one of two methods. If I see any insects or pests on my plants and I am not just enamored by the or, you know, in love with what the insects are doing to my plant, because I think plant damage is sometimes really cool, um, I will either just take a, just a dishcloth, and it depends on the, the, the rigidity of that plant as well. Like, if you have a really delicate plant with really small leaves and thin stems, you might not want to take a washcloth and just, like, start rubbing on those leaves. It's a little bit, it's a little bit dangerous to the plant. You could do more damage to the plant than good. Um, so, I either, if I have a really sturdy plant that has really sturdy big leaves, I'll just take a yeah a dishcloth with some water. You can add a little bit of dish soap to that as well, um, but you don't need to use too much of it. And just wipe those leaves off to just wipe those pests off. And in doing so, you're going to kill those pests uh, because they're you know so tiny and they can't really survive just getting brushed with a, a rag. Um, if I have really delicate leaves or if, uh, if the leaves are really small and I need to get into really tiny crevices, I'll take a paintbrush and I'll just dip it in some rubbing alcohol you could also use water um, for this in this case as well, but and just you know lightly rub or get those insect pests or those pests off of those plants with a paintbrush. So any physical removal that's not going to harm the plant itself is going to be beneficial to getting pests off of it. Um, and yeah, you usually don't need much more than water at the most, dish soap or rubbing alcohol. How do you feel about insecticidal soap? So insecticidal soap is is a great tool. I mean, when we think of like an integrated approach to management or managing a pest, there are sometimes chemicals and insecticidal soaps involved. I think with house plants, it gets a little bit more challenging to do that because we're introducing potential harmful chemicals into the home. Uh, insecticidal soap, though, is 
generally a more friendly one for um, household plants. So I, I think I like to terminate the amount of chemical use we're going to use at insecticidal soap. There are certainly other chemical options available past that or beyond insecticidal soap. But I before even before insecticidal soap, I always recommend just using the water method, using the uh, physical removal method. You know, the less things we're spending money on to manage our pests, the less we, you know, it's it just makes it much easier to just do the things that are cheap and easy that we all generally have on hand as before long as we just run to the store. As long as we're and, consistent and willing to put in the time. Right. And so that's the thing is sometimes managing these pests with, you know, just rubbing them off the plant. Sometimes that can take several weeks, but it does work. I, I recently had some pepper plants last growing season that were just covered with aphids. And again, I'm a notorious plant killer. I had starters that I didn't put in the ground yet. And it you took several weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it took several weeks of like getting them off with a paintbrush. And Entomologist ethanol. Zach Shum of Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. We've been talking about houseplants and insect pests so far, but if you are planning your garden for the spring, if you're thinking about pruning, if you're thinking about anything about your houseplants, you can call and ask your questions. Give us a call, 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me today, Zach Shum of the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. And also here, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. And so, Aaron, when you were listening to Zach talk about how much he enjoys watching insects kill <laughs> plants, what did that do to you? <laughs> I mean, I totally understand it. You know, you got to be passionate about stuff. So... I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and Zach, we didn't talk about how, I mean, at some point, sometimes you do have to give up on a plant, right? Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite recommendations. Like I, you know, sometimes these pests can be Least very favorite persistent. to receive, but it's your yeah, favorite right. to give. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes we focus so much on like, you know, spending money on different resources to try to manage these pests when... You know, we get to the end of this and we've spent, you know, just dozens of dollars, you know, whatever that dollar amount is when the plant only costs like 15 bucks to replace. Right. And I've been in that situation many times myself where, like, I want to help this plant thrive and I'll, you know, spend money on whatever to try to help this plant out when it just would have been easier for me to just buy a plant that was just healthier, that didn't have pests on it in the first place. 
Um, so, yeah, the throwaway method is very effective. I mean, if you want to get rid of your pest quickly, just throw your plant away and get a new one, <laughs> which folks usually hate hearing, but it Absolutely. is an effective method. Yeah. Well, and and I also was thinking about um, the, the person in my life who loves houseplants the most is an impulsive shopper. And we often end up bringing home houseplants when there has been no intention of purchasing a houseplant. So uh, <laughs> that, that can be problematic, too, Aaron. I'm sure that you probably fall into that category oh, as well. No. I mean, think about having your magnifying glass and doing your uh, due diligence. I, I'll bet you haven't always done it. No. I mean, I'll always look at a plant, you know, flip the leaves over, look at the backside of it, especially like along the veins and like down in like where the where the blade of the leaf connects to the petiole or where the petiole connects to the stem. Like those areas, I'll always check those areas, make sure that's not like sticky underneath of it. That's usually a big sign, right? Like a lot of these insects produce honeydew, which is sticky to the touch. That's you. I don't usually have a magnifying glass, so that I make sure I do that before I impulse buy. I have been known to not have any intention of buying a plant and then come home with a plant. Absolutely. Yes. Well, and and I will just share my favorite magnifying hack, which is take a picture on your cell phone and then zoom in. So Zach, yes. Zach, you might have a magnifying glass. I certainly don't have one with me. I, I always have one on hand. That's a, that's very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, that's actually quite a little bit of a lie, but I, okay. I usually have something to either collect or observe insects on me at all times. <laughs> <laughs> something, again, to strive for in 2023. Um, Aaron, do you have some advice for when we bring our plants in from outdoors? Do you have a good system for how to do that? And then, you know, that, of course, is part of that process of preventing an insect infestation. Yeah, uh, it always starts with, again, like kind of observing the plant. Um, this usually starts around September for me because typically by the end of September is when that stuff has to come in. It can vary a little bit uh, year to year based on the weather, but usually around the end of September is when it starts getting cold enough at night that we'll want to bring those plants inside. And so I'm watching these plants to see if they have insect issues. I had this very issue. I was actually talking to Zach about this before we came on the air this morning. I had this beautiful weeping fig out on my deck, big, like six, seven foot tall, variegated, lovely looking plant. And it was, I noticed right before Labor Day that it was um, covered in scale just mm. everywhere. And that's a plant that can be really hard to physically remove all of it. One, it was very large. Um, and two, uh, weeping fig has just all these thin little stems and tiny, relatively small leaves. Uh, they can be everywhere on that plant. And so um, I spent some time, those several weeks, trying to clean it up. Um, and when it came time to bring it inside, it I couldn't get it clean enough. And so I decided to um, not bring it in, at least as it was. I actually ended up just cutting it all the way back <laughs> and brought it in. And I thought, you know what? If it doesn't make it through this, because that's a pretty drastic measure, I was going to throw it out anyway. So we'll see what happens. All right. And, and that so, allows so you made it. To... You made it manageable. You made it something that you could clean up, yes. even though it may ultimately sacrifice the plants. It may, yeah, and I lost a big chunk of that plant, which was sad. But it's also sad to bring a plant in that's covered with scale or mealybug and then have it on all my other plants too. Right, which can that that's a gift that can last all winter long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gift. Right. <laughs> and into the next year as well. If you have questions about any of the plants or trees or 
seeds or insects in your life, you can give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We've got a couple of lines open for you right now if you'd like to get your question on the air. And we have a question from Patty in Brooklyn. Um, I have had an infestation of squash bugs every year that are killing all of my vining plants, such as cucumbers, butternut, and zucchini. I've tried many types of sprays with no success. What is the best way to prevent or kill them? Obviously, looking ahead to next summer. Zach? Yeah, that's a great question, Patty, and a really challenging one. So I, I just moved here from Utah, actually, and the squash bugs in Utah were just the most insane thing I've ever seen in my entire life. There's just so many here. I haven't had a full growing season in Iowa yet, so um, I'll be curious to see how how bad they are here as in comparison. But squash bugs, once you once they're abundant, they're next to impossible. They're one that you know as soon as your plants start sprouting, as soon as you start seeing those leaves out in the field, you really need to be diligent about looking for the adults and looking for the eggs of those insects. So you know, I mean, I'm literally as soon as you start seeing leaves, monitor those leaves, look underneath of those leaves every day. If you can, uh, at least a few times a week, flip those leaves over, look for those eggs of that squash bug. So the eggs are, for those of you that are listening that aren't familiar with squash bugs, their eggs are brown in color. They're usually in masses of, you know, probably 15 to 25 eggs or so. And they're laid on the underside of the leaves. They're laid in crevices of those stems and things of that nature. And the more time you spend squashing those eggs, you can just squash them between your fingers um, you can even use like duct tape to just like rip those egg masses off to kill those uh, those eggs and those nymphs that are developing in them. You're really going to help prevent squash bugs later on in the season. Once you let those squash bugs hatch and once you allow them to reproduce more and more heavily throughout the season, you're you're basically done. I mean, as as we all know, those of us that grow squash and have dealt with squash bugs, they can completely decimate your plants. So you have to, and this is very similar to many other insect pests as well. You have to get on it early monitor those plants regularly. Same as we would for an indoor plant, right? Monitor them, uh, remove anything that you find on them that's not supposed to be there. And I know for some of us, you know, we try and we try to get all these squash bugs off our plants and it just doesn't work in the end. And that can happen too. And sometimes we can take some more drastic measures, but I would say to Patty and anybody else that's listening that has squash bug issues, contact me early in the season in the diagnostic lab, and I can help work on a plan for your specific field size and what you're actually growing. Um, but really try to get on those plants early on in the season. You know, if you have a large field, it's really hard to look at each one of those plants, right? Um, so there might have to be some different measures we take. But if you can, get on it early, monitor those plants for those eggs, and squash those eggs or rip them off with duct tape or in some other method. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And, Zach, one of the things that, that I have loved with um, – just improvement in technology in recent years is plant identification apps and how that has really allowed me to know what I'm working with in my environment, at least in a, in a better way, because I don't have the exhaustive knowledge of Aaron style. Uh, are there apps that can help you identify insects? So there, there are, and this is a, this, it, that's a really great question. It's actually one that I get in the diagnostic lab often, like, oh, someone will send me a picture of an insect and say, the, the app told me, whatever app it was, uh, said it was this. Um, and sometimes those apps can be really useful for insects. I, I tend to, when I do use apps to just browse insects, I like to use iNaturalist. Um, and sometimes I think the, the, the AI technology and iNaturalist can get you fairly close 
to what insect we're dealing with, but the caveats to that is that those apps are very bad at identifying really small insects or mm. insects that don't have some showy characteristic to them. I mean, there are millions of species of insects out there, right? And we don't even have all, not all of them are even known to science. I mean, if we spent enough time out there exploring nature, like we could probably all find an insect that was, that's not like known to science, right? And so I would say for like bigger insects that are more showy, larger, maybe have some more coloration to them, I think the apps can be quite effective, but um, the insect diagnostician is not obsolete yet. Like there's there's a lot of tools and skills, and sometimes I even use DNA extraction to get a good identification on an insect because I don't even have the tools to identify it with a microscope. Right? Wow. Um, so, you know, you can use those apps, and they can give you kind of a broad range, like is it a type of fly or versus a beetle? Those kinds of things the apps can be useful for. But getting down to like a genus level or actually figuring out a species level, it's they're not as trustworthy. Um, but, you know, who knows what that's going to look like in 30, 40 years, though. Well, this just got very CSI. That's exciting that you can <laughs> distract the DNA to identify the insects. Oh, you can call and join our conversation. 866-780-9100 is the number. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Jane is on the line in southeast Wisconsin. Hi, Jane. Hello. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. <laughs> What would you like to talk about? Yes, I, I, w- I was interested. I kind of got onto the program late, and I was hearing uh, one of your guests talk about um, bugs on houseplants and bugs that have uh, come in when you bring something in. Um, I decided to try and save over a, a, a garden pepper plant because I really like the fruit, and I didn't know if I'd be able to find the same variety next year. So I gave him a blast of, of uh, water with the hose and, and did that a couple of times and, you know, cleaned up around it and cut it back and put it in a pot. And, oh, a little over a week later, I see, oh, I've got aphids. Oh, good golly. Well, I'm living in the country, so I also have um, the Chinese beetles, you know, the ladybugs that we buy to fight aphids outside. The, the Asian so lady did, beagle, beetles is what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And so there were a few of those crawling around on the windows. You know, they had come in. It was late in the year. I mean, this was November or so. So I just transferred some of those onto the pepper plant. And I'd already killed as many of the aphids as I could by squashing them. <laughs> but they seemed to be coming back and... Golly, I'm looking at the plant right now, and there's no aphids on it at all. Well, Jane, uh, Zach, what do you think? Integrated this, pest management in your in your home? Yeah, so and there's this is another great point. I actually dealt with aphids on pepper plants, as I mentioned a little bit earlier last year, pretty pretty badly. And um, aphids can be a tough one. And so, as I mentioned a little bit earlier too, I don't know, Jane, if you were uh, on on listening to us as we were discussing this, but being diligent about Removing those insects is really, really important. I mean, when I dealt with the aphids on my pepper plants, I was looking at them every day, basically, other than the weekends. Um, And I was removing aphid by aphid, and I would spend 20 to 30 minutes just removing them one by one. And I I had to do that for, you know, two to three weeks before I finally noticed that there were no more aphids on the plants. Um, you, You brought up something interesting about using ladybugs, or, you know, you had some ladybugs on the window that you moved over to the plant. And I, I get a question very frequent of, like, can I go buy 
ladybugs and can I release them onto my plant, whether that's in a greenhouse or in an outdoor garden or indoor plants. And um, that is not actually usually a recommendation of mine. Uh, there are some cases where you can purchase ladybugs or, you know, just go outside and collect them if you can find enough and release them on the plants. But the goal of a living creature controlling another living creature, so a ladybug eating a pest, it's rarely going to remove every single aphid from that plant or every single pest from that plant. The goal there is to sort of create a balance where the where the predator, the one that's doing all the eating, is just keeping those aphid numbers, in this particular case, in check. Um, n- we should never expect to release ladybugs onto a plant and have them eat every single aphid. Could that happen in some circumstances? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in, in a house where it's, you know, it's not exposed to the outdoors and the ladybugs have nowhere to go. I mean, sure, you could definitely see that happen. Um, but I rarely recommend actually purchasing ladybugs and releasing them onto into our gardens and into our house plants. Uh, it's It's much more effective to sort of combine those methods that are cheap and easy, right? Wash the plants as much as you can, be diligent with that. And then maybe if it's really convenient to go collect a couple of ladybugs off the window, that it's never going to do any harm, right? Um, but usually it's a combination of these cheap methods before we get to insecticides that is the most effective, in my experience. But it depends on the situation, for sure. All right. And so, I mean, in this case, Jane could work in partnership with those Asian lady beetles that she had uh, on the windowsill, right? Yeah, yeah. A yeah. good partnership is always fun. And I, I really I kind of enjoy that scenario. I don't usually recommend insecticides for home gardens either because we can sometimes, depending on what insecticide we choose, we can harm those beneficial insects that are already in there trying to control those pests. So if you can stay insecticide free or chemical free, and I, I love that method um, because it's safer for people, it's safer for pets, it's oftentimes safer for those beneficial insects that are out there already trying to control those pests. Houseplants can be a little bit different, certainly. Um, but, yeah, working in tandem with beneficial insects is always a plus. I love my insects, so. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for the call, Jane. We've got this uh, email question from Faith. I have scale all over a star jasmine. The plant is burgeoning. Despite the infestation, I have applied eight granules to no avail. What should I do next? Yeah, so if we... Uh, if we've tried different types of granules, you know, granular insecticides, you're just this problem is really, really diligent. Scale can be really, really tough. I feel like I usually have the most issues with scale uh, when I do have indoor house plants. You know, aphids and things I have no problem dealing with. If I have a persistent scale insect, my, my, my method is usually throw the plant away and get a new one if I've, you know, tried everything else, right? Um, Sometimes the management of scale insects can change depending on what species of scale we're dealing with. I'm a little bit less familiar with star jasmine just because I'm more of an insect person than a plant person. So what I would recommend to them is to reach out reach out to the plant and insect diagnostic clinic. Send me some pictures of what you have going on. I'd be more than happy to try to figure out a way that we could cater to that specific plant. Um, you You can be diligent with those scale insects as well. Remove them with I mean, scale can be a little bit more challenging, but use, you know, a paintbrush or maybe even some delicate forceps. Um, that's a tough one. So that's why I'm here, though. So reach out. <laughs> All right. The, that's the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. With me today, entomologist Zach Shum and also here, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. You can email us, send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. You can also give us a call at 866 780 
9100. And we'll get to phone calls right after the break, but we still have a couple of lines open for you right now. And of course, for more gardening information and tips, you can also subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join our conversation. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me today, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and entomologist Zach Shum of the Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic. And let's get back to the phones. Rainy is on the line in Clear Lake. Hi, Rainy. Hi. Hi, what's your uh, question? Thank you for the program. Sure. My my uh, question is, I grow raspberries, and when the fruits are starting to ripen, I have a huge problem with picnic bugs, which has been very difficult um, to control. You know, the, the trap methods just seems to attract more in, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas on how to deal with picnic bugs on raspberry crops. Yeah, thank you, Rainy. That's a great question. So, as I was, as you were asking that question, I actually had to go online and look up what a picnic bug was. Uh, so, <laughs> their insects have like a bunch of different common names to them, and I've actually never heard that particular insect being called a picnic bug before. So, welcome I, to Iowa. You'll hear it a yeah. lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that's so interesting. So, like, what what I usually call them, I mean, based on what my quick internet search showed, is that they're sap beetles and. I've always, interestingly, had them being called sap beetles in every other part of the country I've lived in. So I, I learned something new. I'm brand new to Iowa, so I appreciate the, the educational opportunity for me as well. <laughs> um, that is something I'd probably have to look into a little bit more just because I've never really dealt with them on raspberry. I mean, sap beetles are typically, or picnic beetles, are typically things that are feeding on decaying organic matter. Now, there are some species that can feed on plants and can be considered plant pests, but I've actually never dealt with them on raspberry. Um, in the other regions that I've lived in, we've dealt with them in, in corn. Uh, we've dealt with them in some other crops, but never raspberries. So that's probably a regional difference. Um, where I am coming from, we don't grow a ton of raspberries. So, um, Rainy, what I would recommend to you in that case is uh, just you know re- feel free to reach out to me in the diagnostic lab, and I'd be happy to look into this a little bit more. I mean, Aaron, I don't know you sitting across from me if you've ever dealt with them on raspberries before know what to do but i'm, I'm kind of new to iowa so that's a, yeah. a new bug on a new plant <laughs> i mean i know the insect in the plant but i've never dealt with them in tandem so. yeah and i think too um you know knowing how they what they feed on and 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 those kinds of things trying to maintain as clean of a space as possible um being very diligent about harvesting on a regular basis so you don't have any um uh, rotting or decaying fruit or really soft fruit even um, can also be mm-hmm. helpful. They're really, they can be really difficult to deal with. Sometimes you just have to um, try to stay ahead of them and um, make sure that you're not, uh, and, and, and kind of 
I guess, uh, kind of resign the fact that you might have a little bit of it. Um, and that's okay to have it a little bit. You're not taking them to the state fair anyway. So, um, you know, kind of work around what it has, trying to reduce the instances by harvesting regularly and, and keeping the patch clean um, will help too. Yeah. So that, and that's where my brain went, right? Okay. Because they do feed on typically decaying organic matter. And with most plants in most situations, I've always said with picnic bugs or sap beetles, whatever we decide to call them, that, you know, if you do keep that area very clean, there's not a lot of like rotting leaves and, you know, sitting on the soil layer. There's not a lot of rotting fruits. If you just remove those things, I mean, that's historically solved most of the sap beetle problems that I've dealt with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad to hear Aaron say that and just kind of reaffirm what my, my thoughts were. But I, I try not to comment on things that I've never dealt with personally. And uh, <laughs> I think that's a very good policy. <laughs> on, on raspberries in Iowa is just kind of a new thing for me. But well, yeah. And that can be really hard in raspberry because sometimes they turn into these big briar patches and it can be hard to get into them to keep them clean um, or or to kind of keep uh, some of that uh, or it's hard to get into the harvest all of the fruit. Um, and so uh, making sure that you're uh, doing a good job of pruning in the spring or the fall, making sure that you're maintaining some pathways through it um, uh, so that you can get to all areas would all help too sanitation in the fall too make mm-hmm. sure you're getting up all that leaf litter and all that stuff off the ground that's always helpful for sap beetles in general so rainy thanks so much for the call next up let's go to tim in moline hi tim hello thanks hi. for taking my call hi i um have bought the grocery store orchids and of course they're very beautiful when i get them but uh, i struggle with getting them to rebloom. Uh, I this last one I bought, I did take it out of its plastic cup and put it in a regular orchid pot. So I was wondering if maybe it needs to be more root bound and I just need time or what are some hints anyway? Yeah. So it's probably a moth orchid. Those are the ones that are typically found one of the most ubiquitous orchids out there. Um, so that's, it's probably a, a phalaenopsis and um, moth orchids typically bloom um at a certain point in the season, they're not like a always blooming kind of, of orchid. Um, right. The best way to, when I'm not seeing my orchids rebloom, the I'll, I'll, I'll address them in this order. I'll first look at the amount of light it's getting. If the plants aren't getting enough light all season, um, they won't have been able to store up enough energy to produce flowers. So um, east facing windows, bright indirect light, maybe even adding supplemental light with like an LED light fixture or a fluorescent light fixture um, may be needed depending on how much light they're getting. Um, If you have a window that an African violet does well in, a a moth orchid would do really well in that window too. If uh, it seems to be getting enough light. Okay, so it might be light and that's where I would always start. If if you address the light or you don't think it's the light, the next thing you look at is fertility um, during the growing season. So after it's finished blooming, um, usually kind of late winter, early spring, when the last flowers drop off, you'll want to start regularly fertilizing it with a, a general all-purpose fertilizer is fine. Um, use it at half or quarter strength as what's listed on the box because it's an indoor plant that doesn't need quite as much as the um, instructions are written for because those instructions are written for outdoor plants. Um, use it at half or quarter strength every other time you water, every three times you water. Um, that will help kind of provide the nutrition that it needs to help get up enough uh, energy to produce a new flower. If that's okay, then the next thing you have to look at is temperatures. 
Uh, moth orchids would like to see a drop in temperature uh, just a little bit. It's not a significant change, and often it happens naturally, whether they're outside or inside, because our homes are cooler in the winter. This is one of the reasons why they bloom in the spring, because they get this kind of temperature drop in the fall that helps initiate the start of the flowers. So if, if the light is good, if you're fertilizing regularly, that would be the next thing I would look at to see if you can get it to flower. I think it goes to my east window. <laughs> the north window now. All so right. Probably will be helpful. Yes. Yeah, good luck. Thank you. Good luck, Tim. Thanks a lot for the call. 866-780-9100. Vicki is up next in Davenport. Hi, Vicki. Hi, how are you? Good. What's your question? My question is, have you used diamaceous soil or diatomaceous soil to eliminate um Houseplant insects. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Vicky. So I I mean I never personally have. If if that's um, not not that you probably couldn't do that for some insects, but I mean usually when I recommend potting plants, I usually just recommend getting uh, some sort of like sterilized or close to it soil for potting plants. But I I also don't grow plants a lot, so. Um, yeah. And Aaron's probably used some soil with some diatomaceous well, earth in it. Well, yeah, and diatomaceous earth or, um, you know, essentially, as far as I understand, and Zach can correct me on this, but essentially it works because it's like crawling on razor blades, right? And so um, it works well for those types of insects like or insect-like things. Slugs in particular is what I'm thinking right. of. Slugs and snails, um, that can be a very effective way to help deal with diatom- uh, deal with them using diatomaceous earth. The problem um, is that it probably wouldn't work as well on a houseplant because many of our big houseplant insects aren't actually all that mobile. I mean, white flies and fungus gnats, very mobile. But mealybug and scale in particular, both of them set up shop and live there basically the rest of their life. They don't crawl around. And so diatomaceous earth isn't going to be that helpful in that situation. Um, so um, if you have little caterpillars on your on your plants, you know, you accidentally bring in loopers or something like that um, from bringing them from outside, it could be beneficial. But for most of our houseplant insects, just the way that that works, I would imagine yeah. it's not terribly effective. Well, that's kind of where my brain went, because obviously, like, the insecticide, I mean, the, what insect pests we're dealing with will change up what insecticide or what type of chemical or any sort of application we would recommend is and, you know, diatomaceous earth, like most of the really common pests that we have indoors, as Aaron said, like aren't going to be ones where that's really effective. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and you know say that there's like real harm in doing something like that, but it just might not be beneficial in an indoor setting for most of the things that we deal with. Um, that, that would be my, my gut reaction to that. Vicki, thanks a lot for the call. And uh, let's go to some email questions. We have a lot of those today. Uh, this one is from... Ashley in Forest City, I have an indoor cactus that I've never known what specific species it is. It's a cluster of round stems and it grows little round, almost puffballs, for lack of a better term. Anyway, my question is, it's slowly getting reddish brown coloring. No other symptoms, though. I treated it for fungus at one point and that didn't seem to be the issue. Any thoughts? So that reddish brown color could be a couple of different things. Um, there are several species of cactus that kind of have this growth habit. The most common ones are mammillaria, and, uh, which is sometimes called nipple cactus. So I, I kind of like mammillaria better. Um, and golden uh, ball cactus. Uh, both of them have kind of this rounded habit that put little offsets off. One of the things that can happen with cacti is if there's a sudden change in light, 
Um, so like you move them outside or you move them to a much brighter location, you can actually get some damage from um, basically like a sunburn on the plant. And the challenge with cacti is, uh, unlike our other plants that have leaves, that if they get sun damage on them, um, those leaves eventually kind of dry or fall off and you don't have it anymore. On a cacti, that doesn't happen and that damage is permanent. And so if you're seeing kind of like a brownish patch develop, it could be from damage that happened, either physical damage, like something uh, scraped it or something like that, or damage from something like um, too much light, too, uh, too big of a light change too quickly, like a sunburn almost. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's not the case uh, in this situation. Um, it's hard to know without knowing more about where and how it's grown, um, but that is where um, I would start um, my investigation. It's not harming the plant, um, if it if that's the case, but it will always be there. Hmm. Ashley, thanks for the question. Alice in Shueyville has this question. I have had a Christmas cactus for about three years. This is the first year that it has bloomed on Christmas. Oh, I've been yay. keeping it in a darker, cool room. It still has several mm-hmm. blooms that have not yet opened. Can I bring it into a room that gets more light so we can enjoy the blooms? And will this make the blooms open up quicker? Yes, you can. So um, the big thing to keep in mind, though, is that you typically want to wait until the buds start to color up. And if it's already started to bloom, you can do this. If you move the plant too early, sometimes it'll drop the buds. Um, But if those buds have started to color up, it is a bummer when that happens. Uh, But if they've started to color up, you can absolutely move it. This is what I do with my Christmas cactus, too. Um, It's in a much, uh, you know, cooler room because it likes those cooler temperatures. Um, And then when it blooms, as soon as those buds start to open or as soon as they start to get a little pinkish in color, that's when I move it out to where I can enjoy it for the couple of weeks that it's in bloom. So it sounds like they're at that point so they can do it. Nice. Uh, Laurel has this question for you, Zach. I'm wondering about how to handle fungus gnats, which seem to live in the soil so they can't be picked off or washed off. Is there anything I can do but throw out the plant and how do I avoid getting them again? Yes, there is, Laurel. That's a, I, I, fungus gnat questions are probably one of the more common ones that we've, we get. Um, and what I would recommend for fungus gnats is to really focus on how we're watering those plants. So fungus gnats, the larvae that are living in the soil, so the adults are certainly like out and flying out and about, but the larvae are in the soil of those plants. So yeah, we can't really take a paintbrush. We can't wipe them off. Um, what you can do, though, is really limit your watering. So, well, when I say limit watering, what I mean by that is we don't want to leave that soil saturated or wet at all times. So try to water periodically but well and let that soil dry out between waterings. So that can really help to kill a lot of those fungus and that larvae that are in the soil. Uh, another thing that you can do, and this is kind of fun, a fun experiment for an entomologist like myself, is to take a little cut of potato. It can be any kind of potato. Just cut a little section of it off and kind of push it down into the soil just a little bit. And sometimes you can monitor the fungus gnat populations by doing so because the fungus gnats are going to come and feed on that potato. Uh, so doing that can help you monitor how many fungus gnats you're kind of dealing with in that soil. But really let that soil dry out between waterings as long as it's safe for the plant. You want the plant to be well watered, but you don't want to leave that soil moist. Um, once the fungus gnats are kind of gone, you can kind of increase the watering if a little bit if you think the plant will really enjoy it. Uh, you can also use yellow sticky traps to try to capture some of those adults that are kind of flying around the house. So Maybe hang a yellow sticky card trap near the plant to get some of those adults so they're not laying eggs. But really focusing on watering for them is is the most beneficial thing you can do. There are some insecticide options that are really like uh, BT, like Bacillus thuringiensis, 
uh, but those are kind of expensive and I don't think they're ever really warranted. So focus on watering. That's the, the best thing you can do. All right, let's go back to the phones. Our final call of the day. Susan is in Pleasantville. Hi, Susan. What's your question? I have a question about uh, an orchid that I have now that's blooming. And from the bottom of the base of the plant, there are stems. I would call them stems coming up. Oh, several of them, you know, I know how they twist and they, and they turn. Do I cut some of those off or are they going to be have blooms uh, in the future or what's your recommendation? Yeah, so those kind of quote-unquote stems, uh, again, this is probably a moth orchid. Most of us, if we have an orchid, it's a moth orchid. And they typically have kind of three or four big, wide leaves. And then they have these huge, thick, um, stem-like roots that come out. In their natural habitat, these orchids grow kind of in the crotches of trees and on, on branches. And they use these big roots to hold on Uh, to those areas. They are not causing any damage. There's no need to cut them off. Um, Sometimes they get a little weird looking. When you get a whole bunch of them, that can be a sign that maybe you need to repot. Um, But if you were to kind of dig down, it's probably growing in in a sphagnum moss. Sometimes it's in bark, but a lot of the orchids we buy now are in sphagnum moss. If you were to pull it out of the pot, you would see those same thick roots down inside that sphagnum moss too. They will even sometimes turn green um, because they can help also photosynthesize. Um, but uh, no need to cut them off. They're not causing any damage. Um, and uh, you can just kind of let them be. Susan, thank you so much for the call. And we are out of time. Aaron Style, thank you so much. You're welcome. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. And Zach Shum, thank you. Thanks for having me. Come back anytime. Will do. Entomologist Zach Shum of Iowa State University Plant and Insect Diagnostic Clinic will be back again with Horticulture Day two weeks from now. And then, of course, we'll return to our weekly shows in March. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Caitlin Troutman, Danny Gear, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.